We are going to toast to the Star Wars trailers that are coming out for The Last Jedi because uh, they're more emotional filmmaking than I've seen in most theater films yeah, this than, year. Than anything, and this is just off the top of my head, Joel Schumacher, Brian Singer. <laughs> uh, who's that? Who's the douchebag that did uh, Rush Hour? Uh, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner. Well, okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, than anything Emphatically on the last one. Any yeah. of those gentlemen have ever done. No, I agree. The I two and a half them. minutes I got on The Last Jedi... I- I never knew I wanted to see uh, Mark Hamill's face with, like, a gin blossom nose just blasted by time, looking like he's doing a Slavoj Zizak impression. But that trailer taught me that it's exactly what I wanted to see. I wanted to see that the entire time. Uh, So, yeah, uh, to The Last Jedi and trailers that get you actually hyped about movies rather than revealing everything they're about. About movies. Hey everybody, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is The Mix Six, where we have six beers, do six reviews, and have six conversations. Uh, And seeing as we have all those sixes, the next thing is a five-point rating system. Absolutely. Obviously, that would logically follow. Um, So we do a five-point rating system on this podcast, where we have our beers and and rate them as a one-to-five scale. Uh, This week, we've picked uh, RPG systems because we forgot to come up with a rating system before we walked in, and there are RPGs on the shelves, and we just started naming things we were seeing. Forgot to is like a strong term. I think that we put all of our effort and energy into planning an otherwise excellent episode. It's true. And something slipped through the cracks. We're aesthetically so dedicated. So focused on the real core of this bit that, the, that the, we the forgot. The logistical realities of the podcast fall away. Sometimes. Not our fault. Yeah. So uh, I did the rating system here, rating RPGs based on my personal preference alone. So, uh, But I'm also absolutely right, and this is objectively correct, because I have a microphone. It's, so, it's, cer- it's certainly going to seem that way when the audience hears this and then lauds you for months about how right you were. I'm not even going to say anything in here, and I'm still going to be wrong on this. Yes, somehow. I'm really interested to see what number one is, like the, and like number five. Like. All, right, all right, so uh, for me, uh, on my rating system, a one or a beer that makes you never want to drink beer again, just like playing this game would make you rightfully never want to play an RPG again, would be riffs. By Palladium, the game that is everything and nothing. It's a thinking man's game. No, it's not. You can't keep saying that, and it won't make it true. Um, So number two, this is going to be the hot take that will cause the angry comments, is going to be World of Darkness. And all after after I I just wrote in parentheses, fight me. Yeah, just in all caps, it just says fight me in the show notes. Now, and uh, to be clear, my difference between one and two on World of Darkness and Rifts depends on, do I think stupidity leads to sexual violence? Are sexual violence and stupidity separate things? It really depends, because World of Darkness can go down to a one, depending on how I'm feeling wow. about the way where all evil in the world comes from. <laughs> so, as a three, though, I'm going to give it to 13th Age. It does what D&D and Pathfinder do, but it does them in a way that doesn't make me not want to play them very much. So it's a perfectly serviceable game. It's also expected. You're playing a fantasy. There are dwarves. There are clerics. There are elves. They are shooting bows and throwing axes. According to their racial stereotypes, it is everything that you want of a fantasy role-playing game. Uh, Four for me is going to be Ore, which is the one-roll engine. Uh, One of my first positive exposures to RPGs. I liked it very much. It can do superheroes. It can do uh, fun children's adventure stories. It can do horror. I'm a big fan. Noir, one of my favorite systems. Noir. Noir. See what I did there? I just combined the words. 
And then a five, which is something that makes you want to dedicate yourself to the hobby completely and write books about it, just like this beer makes you want to open up your Chrome Craft Brewery, is going to be Call of Cthulhu, or COC, the classic, uh, the ultimate role-playing game, in my opinion. And I've played none of these, so I'm going to take it at face value. Yes. And I look forward to reviewing beers using the system. You, like listeners, should just assume I am right and leave it at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Definitely. And with that final note, let's move on to the episode. Cool, great. Caleb, it's your rating system, so you should get to use it first. What are you drinking, and how would you rate it? I am drinking from Odell Brewing, uh, and with our theme, we didn't even mention our theme Holy this episode. Holy shit, yeah. Our theme, as this is being one of the last weeks of September, and we're late, and it's going to be posted late, Yep. Uh, this is your belated Oktoberfest. Right. If, you, if you miss the Lederhosen and the Steins and all of the festivities. Right. Uh, it's here in October, or maybe November. I don't know what's even posted, but it's here for you That's right. when you're ready for as, it. As the good people at Good Brews, Bad Views would remind us, yes. most Oktoberfest, actually Oktoberfest, happens in September. Yes. And so we wanted to get one of these in before the calendar month was over. Mm-hmm. We've done that. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, universe. And now we're trying Oktoberfest. How would you rate that beer? So this uh, Oktoberfest Mars and Style Lager by Odell Brewing is a solid 13th age. It's a three. Yeah. If I was told I was going to drink an Oktoberfest and I was told I was going to drink a Mars and Style Lager, I would expect to taste this. Sure. And then I would taste it. And lo and behold, I was right. Yeah, totally reasonable. Uh, it is definitely right there. So what are we going to talk about? So it's our first segment, which means we're doing dissecting our fun, as we always do in yes. this, the first segment of the Mixed Six we Podcast. Like board games. It's where we talk about a board game we've recently played, a board game that we'd like to review, maybe a conceptual debate on whose board game would be better. We don't need to talk about the Twitter results of that conversation. Uh, or, in this instance, we can talk about the mechanics of a board game or of various board games that we've been talking a lot about lately. So just a couple of days ago, this last weekend, we played Five Tribes together. Uh, Five Tribes is a game that we've already covered here, but in our discussion of Five Tribes, someone eloquently pointed out to us, I believe Darren Pretty, on Facebook in a comment after the, the, the episode, that one of the things that we forgot to talk about regarding Five Tribes is the turn order mechanic, because yes. you bid for turn order mm-hmm. in Five Tribes. It is variable. And Five Tribes is not the only game in which you bid for turn order. It's not the only game we've talked about in which you bid for turn order. Uh, so Small Wonders. Uh, small World? Small, oh uh, no, World of Wonder that does Small World, sorry. Okay. Uh, Days of Wonder does Days Small of World. Okay, wow, I really just right. messed that right up. Yep. All right. Hey, I've had one a fourth of quarter one. of a beer. Yes, so I'm, I'm really messed up. Uh, so anyway, Days of Wonder there does Small World and Cargo Noir and, and Five Tribes. Five tribes loves themselves a bidding mechanic. Love the bid mechanic. Uh, in Cargo Noir, you are bidding for the various things you are picking up, the illicit contraband that you are shipping to and fro. In Small World, you're bidding for the powers of your races. Uh, so are you going to really go hard on for those dragon elves? Are you going to get your seafaring orcs or right. things like that? Uh, and that entirely determines your powers and ability to move throughout the game and yeah. strategy. And then Five Tribes, you're bidding your literal victory points on turn order right. in order to execute your victory point strategy right. in a movement strategy that makes improvisation nightmarishly difficult. Right, yeah. So for those of you who are probably on the, the like lesser end of the board game playing spectrum, uh, 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 part of our audience, what we mean when we say bid for turn order is that you're literally paying some resource 
to determine who goes first, second, third, and fourth. Blind. Blind, yeah. And so if you want to go first, then you're in many instances just putting down a number of money, for example, to, to claim that first spot. And if yes. you bid the highest amount, then you get to go in the first, the first order. If you don't bid the highest amount, you still get rid of the money, and then you end up playing second, third, or fourth, whatever the kind of following yes. consequential turns are. So bidding for turn order is a thing that Days of Wonder has kind of injected into a number of their games, but there are a ton of systems which rely on bidding for turn order. And since we've been encountering a lot of games that do that lately, uh, just this last weekend, in fact, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to talk about, do you like bidding for turn order? Or would you prefer that that was not part of the game, right? Because what it does is it turns turn order into part of the game in and of its, its own metagame, right? Yes. Um, is that something you're interested in? Is that something that you think adds depth to a game? Or would you just rather it kind of be randomly assigned or using kind of like one of those ridiculous things that games will say at the beginning and, and, you know, in terms of determining turn order, the last person who was sick, for example, gets to go first in this game. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you on the side of, yeah, let's bid for that shit, or would you rather be like, nah, just tell me and we'll figure it out from there? I'm really torn. Okay. <clears throat> so um, on the one side, I really like the psychology of it. I really like the tactics of planning for it. Sure. Um, I really like the ability that you have a strategy you're going to get if you go high up, but you're only willing to pay so much, and then you come up with an alternate strategy. So Alchemists is a game in which you have a bidded for turn order in which um, you are not bidding resources so much as you're choosing to wake up earlier or later in the day. Right. And then that is changing what is available to you. So certain resources are available earlier in the day and you go early, but other resources that are, aren't available until the shops open, which right. would be later in the day. And some aren't available until the evening, which is waiting way late, but then it's a worker placement. So if the spot is occupied mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. went first, you're screwed. Um, so Alchemist is a game where I can bid for turn order and I'm looking for resources that I want for a strategy. And I can find it very easy to build Alternate strategies if my bid doesn't win right. or someone bids above me. Sure. Alternately, there's games like Five Tribes where I'm not wild about the bid order yeah. because I find it insanely frustrating, even though it is working as intended, when I'm like, I'm going to bid eight to go first. Yeah. And then everyone's like, I'll go zero, zero, zero. And I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, absolutely. I just literally threw away eight points for absolutely nothing. Right, because I misread what you were intending to do, and it becomes sort of this like poker deception game. And if you haven't met me, that's not my style. Again. Yeah, I don't like playing jam. head games too much at the table, uh, which is I think why we dislike you know bullshitting games, right? Exactly, which are entirely based on head games. Yeah, I don't I don't want to sit and try to read you, and yeah. I don't want to be read. I kind of want to play the game as intended on the table. Yeah, and in the wasting resources thing is a as a game design thing. While it does. Uh, Definitely invoke a feel. Um, I, I and I don't. I'm not going to not play a game because it has a bidding mechanic. It is going to cause some consternation. Like some yeah. people are not going to be happy to see that for sure. And I recognize like there's some of this in red markets too because you're you're bidding before you roll in a hope to improve your chances, and then you roll a ten black over a red one, right. and you didn't need to do anything. Right. Um, but. Like, that is meant to invoke a specific frustration. Yeah. I think the only problem with a bid mechanic is when the frustration that is possible in it is not something you intend. Right. So I have, like, a slightly different take on the Five Tribes thing than you. And and maybe this is, if I could extrapolate a little bit and say, here's my approach to bidding for turn order generally. And I don't know that I have one, if I'm being totally honest. But here, here's kind of where I've landed as I've been thinking about this conversation for today's episode. Um, the Five Tribes one I actually like for some reason. Uh, and I think it's because... I can look at the board and I can say, okay, I I see the board and everybody else has the same board as me. 
I know that if I go first, I can make this move, and this move will net me this many points, because the math is fairly objective in Five Tribes. And if I know that this move will net me mm, 10 points, then do I feel comfortable bidding Mm. 8 money or 8 points or 5 money or 5 points? You're, You're guessing on a profit margin. Right, to guess on a profit margin. And in some ways, because I find the rest of that game uh, unnecessarily complex probably isn't the right phrase, but it's pretty close to what it is I'm thinking about. I just think that there are probably too many win conditions in Five Tribes for me I, sometimes. I would say unnecessarily complex yeah. is in there. Um, in you a, could cut two win conditions and be fine. Right. In a game where there are so many win conditions, you've given me at least one thing that is almost black and white napkin math. You know yeah. what I mean? Can I map out a path to getting at least this number of points in this instance, regardless of what everyone else chooses to mm-hmm. do? Yes. I actually think the bid for turn order thing works in Five Tribes. It's probably one of my more favorite I think the thing there. that saves it for me is the fact that if you bid and got to go first, you are then first to bid next time. Right. Which means then you do the overbid and you're spending more. Sure. And so you have to give up that position. Totally fair. Uh, you cannot stay in that power position for the whole game unless you're really great at reading about how other people are going to bid. Yeah. Because it's going to become very damaging. You're going to hemorrhage your gold and that's your primary victory point. Here's, here's, my other, here's my other thought about this. And I, again, I'm not sure. I kind of come down on both sides of this. I think that sometimes it's how much energy do I have. Sometimes it's how much have I consumed and therefore don't want to think too critically about a game mm-hmm. that I'm playing. For example, like Five Times is not a game to end the night on. You know no, what I mean? No, not at all. Um, do you, we said ending the night on it. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. Do you... <laughs> Like, I don't know that I'm for adding more game to games sometimes. And sometimes bidding for turn order feels just like that for me. Um, All you've done is you've added a game on top of the game. So the game is to do all this stuff to create victory points. And what you've done now is you've built a mini game before the game to figure out how to do all that other stuff to create victory points. And I don't know that I need that gauntlet of things to get to the conversion action. See, I think theme's important, too. So, like, I don't think I like it as much as Five Tribes as I do in Cargo Noir, because Cargo Noir makes sense. Yes. It's literally a game of economic smuggling. Right. While there is a lot of economic trading in Five Tribes, like... At no point do you have to pay more to go first with your camel. Right. Like, it, yeah. thematically, it breaks down. In Small World, it makes almost no sense. Well, I don't know. So if you think of Small World as a, like, land-conquering, right? Yeah. Uh, area, area-owning area game. Yeah. Um, it makes some sense, especially early in the game bidding for turn order, because based on the setup of the board, there may be easier spaces to take. And so going yeah, earlier... Yeah, but Small World's ostensibly a... Uh, a war though like you're conquering kind of stuff you're rolling for battle like it doesn't seem like it has an economic focus um it well so it probably doesn't have an economic focus no but but you are still playing these like faux gold coins faux victory points right and and Mm. and the bid for turner there is not is not just um you know what what land can you take first but it's also uh what modifier do you get for the race that you're playing with yeah and some of those modifiers are kill i mean they're just like one shot kills and then uh the bid mechanic in marrying mr darcy which we've talked about yeah absolutely is the entire point of the game yes which i'm which i love it right like i think that makes perfect sense sure so thematically so um what i've determined in thinking about it because like you really struck me when you wrote this on the question was um i either want it to be entirely integrated in themes like well of course there's a bid mechanic like like why wouldn't there be a bid mechanic? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> or I want it completely detached, which is uh, when we were talking about some things to try and party foul. Yeah. Completely detaching it. Yes. Like, uh, so, like, you were talking about, well, we should do it. And I just literally, like, ran to my phone. Like, right. Had an epiphany. And I'm like, well, the drinking deck 
is a bid mechanic for turn order. Absolutely. Only what you're bidding is not points. It's how drunk you get. Right. But that. But, but I will take five drinks to go first. Like, um, but and like, I do think that is integrated into the theme. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, it is. The, it is. Yeah. It is. Right. But it's also like not betting a victory point. It's not trying to build this like, oh, sure. I, I, if I had paid two less in turn three, I would have won the game. Yeah, like, no, absolutely. Which is not something I want to do right. in like our level of game because yeah. we're not designing five tracks. No, no. So, um, nor would we. Yeah, nor I, could we. Yeah. I want to be honest. About oh, yeah, that. Yeah, 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 perfectly clear. Right. Could not even approach it. Not a question. Um, so, I guess that's where I'm at. It's it's basically that it needs to be fully integrated with the theme, and it ev- and it needs to acknowledge the sort of. Um, emotion you get from this sort of like loss research. It's kind of like a turn loss mechanic for me. Yeah. Like I don't doubt that it has tactical decisions and like powers, mm-hmm. but like someone sits there not having a turn and is pissed off. Yeah. And now you've had a game which for at least for one turn, someone sits there and is pissed off. Sure. Absolutely. So again, I'm not going to say like Arkham Horror is a bad game, but when I'm like in the gate and I'm on one side of the gate and I sit there and I'm doing nothing. And then I go to the other side of the gate and I sit there and I do nothing again. And then there's a third turn and then maybe I lose that turn again. Realize that Arkham Horror has just become a psychological tool to piss me off. Right, right. Like, um, so bid mechanics have the ability to do that. Absolutely. And I think you need to acknowledge or like neuter that danger before you put it into a game willy-nilly. But if it fits with the theme, it can be a sort of intellectual, psychological, tactical act- activity sure. that can really add to the experience. Yeah. But you have to acknowledge like that disappointment of like, oh, I went all in at 15, and everyone's like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. I'm like, well, okay. I just let $15 on fire. Yep. Like That's not going to be a positive. And I'm not saying that means it can't be in. But do you want the player not feeling positive at that moment? Because right. games don't have to be fun. No. They, they have to be fun in some way, but they don't have to be fun in every way every time. Like, and some of them are not fun. Yeah, So, but right. just acknowledge what you're going for. Yep. Like, acknowledge how you're, how you're approaching that. I'm with you on that. Um, and so I guess what I'll say here to kind of wrap this up is, not unlike the rating system, at least for a moment, I will accept blindly the standards that you have given me for evaluating this thing, as I think they are good. Doesn't it feel good? No. Just let it wash over you. And I look forward to Just pissing part of it. all over them <laughs> in the segments to come, particularly the Mix 6 mock draft in a few segments. <laughs> um, but until then, it's time to grab a little more beer. We're going to grab another topic, and we'll be back in just a second. What are you drinking? So this is from Bell's, um, which is just some of the best beer. Let's be honest about that. Thank you, Michigan, for everything that you do. This is, in keeping with our theme, plainly titled Oktoberfest Beer. So Bell's, not one for gussying up the title on Focus this one. Focus on the breweries in this one. It's just The titles are going to be similar. Oktoberfest Beer. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've already had it, so there's no still water here. Uh, this is also probably, for me, a 13th age. And I do want to be clear, like, as a, as a style, I just don't love Oktoberfests. And so I think that to get in that four and five range, it's going to have to blow, back, blow, blow past not only what the expectation around an Oktoberfest is, but also the expectation around what every Oktoberfest kind of Meriton-style lager, lager tastes like to me. And this is a really good version of that. And so for me, it's a three, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, uh, you Michigan folks can come at me later because I know that Bell's is near and dear to your heart. And I don't apologize. OK, um, while I drink this, what are we talking about? So an armchair director, which is your number two pick for this week. Thank you very much for voting in your 
floating segment survey, uh, we have two sort of uh, – Synergy questions. We would call them cousins. Again. Yes, cousins, uh, which we fit, felt, felt we could combine. So the main thing came from Stephen Lee, pro question actor Stephen Lee. Man. Uh, doing his subtopic suggestion. And it's he asks, almost embarrassing for other people. Uh, is going to the movie theater a mistake? I love movies and had a great and have great a great time enjoying films on the similar screen, but I also find it blood boilingly painful. People on their phones, people talk, the rustling, people kicking my seat, on and on and on. You guys love film and pop culture, but is going to the cinema a mistake? And then similar to that, Alex B asked in Mix Six, I stupidly went to a midnight showing of the room and walked out after ten minutes, not out of a creative jealous rage over Tommy Wiseau's work of genius, but because of how badly the audience was performing the participation means. He goes on to say all of the other ways they are bad. Uh, and then he says, How do I get good at audience participation and ease into being a louder, more expressive member of a crowd? So I'm going to kind of combine these because I know we are diametrically opposed on this issue. We are. Um, so what is the problem people have with attending the cinema? Yeah. How can it be resolved? Mm-hmm. And where does that fault lie? Yeah. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> like, do you want me to start with why I don't go to the theater? Because that seems like an apt. Play, I mean, that seems apt. like I, mean, I, th- I think it fits for both Stephen and Alex's question. Yeah, it does. And I should I should like make a caveat here, which is ever since we got an Alamo Draft House, I have gone to the theater more. In fact, I would say I've gone to the theater more times in the last three months since that thing opened than I've gone in the previous five years combined. Yes, right? there, there was a period of like, I would say that's categorically true. Yeah, like a three year period of time where I think I may have gone to the cinema once to see episodes. Seven, uh, and I saw it twice. So I guess I went to the theater twice in three years for that. Um, I don't like going to movie theaters, and I don't like going to movie theaters for a number of reasons. I will try to keep them short and relatively condensed. That will not go well. <laughs> if you've listened to Sports Planner, you know where this ends up. Just get comfortable. Um, thing number one, I have high levels of social anxiety. I've talked about this before. No need to belabor that. But the idea of sitting in a room with a bunch of fucking strangers in silence, even while something else is going on and ostensibly our attention is other-focused, makes me want to curl up in a ball and die. Um, Okay. I also have terrible social anxiety. Right. I find that the most comforting part about it. Great. You're you're literally not supposed to talk. Uh You're literally all there for the same reason. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, no one's asking about, well, what do you do for a li- uh, It's It's wonderful. It's, yeah. if, if every action could be us all silently staring in a single direction, uh, I, I'd be fine with that. The solve there is just to not be in a room where you have to figure out how to best not interact with a group of people. So that's why I don't want to go to the theater in the first place. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Um, thing number two for me about the theater is that, like, by and large, I just don't I don't care to be sitting in things that make me uncomfortable, and uh, for a person of my size, a lot of theater seats make me uncomfortable. Oh, that's true. Now, it has gotten better, which is why I say the Alamo Draft House. But as a child, or as a teen, yeah, the, the uh, average movie seat was not meant for a man of your height. No, it wasn't. And, and even as like an early 20s adult, you know, the theaters that we were left to deal with in Springfield were not good for people who are tall or wide, you know, both of which I am. Uh, and so I, I got one myself, going for me. Well, I found myself sitting, you know, for two hours on end trying to hold my knees as close to my body as possible while also not moving my arm. I mean, it was tantamount to being on an airplane. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Just around a lot of, like, probably even more people, and that fucking sucked. Uh, so 
social anxiety, lack of comfort. There aren't many things that I think justify the cost of going to a theater. Um, I'll see everything on HBO at some point, which I already pay for as a service, in an addendum to my Amazon Prime account. Mm-hmm. And so there are very few things that I think warrant going out of my way to deal with those two things that I'm not crazy about, or at least that one thing now that some of these nicer theaters have you know, expanded the seats and moved the space between people, etc. Um, I just don't see the value of it. Um, and, and for what it's worth, I, I don't know, man, like, I don't like not being able to see the fucking doors in theaters. Uh, I, I know it's weird. Like, I know it probably doesn't make sense. No, the phobic thing is a thing that comes up a lot for The phobic thing is a thing for me. Um, and that's I know Baz is not a huge fan of movie theaters. Right. And I worked at a theater for three years to be clear that like as a, as a, as a cultural touchstone, a gathering place, I think the theater has much value. I mean, Stephen knows as much. That's why his question says, you guys love films and pop culture. That's absolutely true. I think that the cinema is fantastic, and I'm glad that people go, and I'm glad that we still support the silver screen or whatever. Um, but I just don't want to do that. And I liked the miracle of the theater. I loved working at a theater. Um, you know, some of my most fond memories are working at a theater. Some of my worst memories are working at a theater. But I still didn't see a lot of movies when I worked at the theater because, again, uncomfortable social anxiety, can't see the door, didn't really care that much about a lot of the stuff that was out, and could just see it for free later yeah. at those times. So why don't people go to theaters? I don't know, a variety of reasons. That's why I don't go to a theater, though. Then you take the, and now let's add some performative audience element on top of this thing, and let's force people now, not force, but certainly obligate by way of social pressure or expectation convention, people to now forcibly fuck social convention in the face in a shared setting? No. Absolutely not. Am I doing that? A little strongly, but mm, medium. <laughs> I feel like when when you're supposed to stand up and yell like awful things at the screen, or yell along awful people yelling things on the screen, or you're supposed to throw stuff at the screen, or you two are supposed to get up and act like a jackass or a buffoon. I get that, and I get that people do that, and I think it's great that people do that. It's super cool that there's a performative setting for that. My God, do I not want to be in that setting? I. I would sooner figure out how to melt myself via fire than sit in a room of people doing that, I think. There may be a level of alcohol I could consume where I would would visibly, viscerally enjoy that kind of thing. I can't figure out what that level of alcohol is. Okay. Maybe you know. I don't know. You've seen me pretty drunk. Yeah, I have I, seen you. I know that you're on the other end of this, though. The total opposite end of the Which spectrum. just fucking blows my mind. I, I love going to the movies. I am so sad I don't go see the movies more often. Uh, in college, I would just go to a movie and then try to sneak into the second theater and only pay if they caught me. I'd spend whole days just moving around movies uh, to try and, like, you know, see as many as I could. I, I absolutely <sighs> love them. Oh, my God, no. Uh, so great. Double features, triple features. I've done it all. Like midnight showings, crazy about them. Like so sad. I have a job now and I can't go to them. Like and see a film for. Oh like, man, absolutely not. No, no, no. Rent a movie. <laughs> Do something old school. Find a block. Find the blockbuster that's still open. <laughs> hey, or the there's nothing more. Seeing a movie is more old school than <laughs> it's, renting it's a movie. It's much more old school. Yeah, right? Whatever. I don't know. It depends <laughs> on your age. Go to family you, video. Do you know the technology, <laughs> the history of it? I don't. Okay. I don't. I've ignored all that. All I just. Right. Um, I hear what you're saying. But are you also for then, like the Rocky Horror Picture? show the rooms is this something that you've done would right. you so i think alex's problem here is that you went to a cult movie that's not cult anymore like there's well no he'd never seen it before so he didn't know what the he didn't know what the rituals were 
Um, did he? Had he? I don't think. I think he saw it before. He said screechy Z grade delivery of the riff tracks jokes in the moment. Well, okay. and also says because of how badly the audience was performing, was performing the, the participation so memes. I think meaning we're acknowledging you know what the participation memes are. So right. like, and that you're performing them badly. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's the thing. Like, I I could see that. Like a a, a cult movie that is like culted out. And it doesn't have a prescribed social structure quite so much as like the Rocky Horror Picture Show right, does at this right. point. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that because then people are talking in a movie and like you're not grading the performance on the movie's performance. You're grading it on the crowd's performance because you're acknowledging that cinema is unique group participation in consuming art. Um, and so like, yeah, if the crowd is bad, it's going to be bad. Going to Snakes on a Plane on opening night with Kevin Ellis dressed as a plane and all of our friends dressed as snakes was the best theater experience I've ever had, and I'm including live theater. It was festive bacchanalia. I... I I cannot I've never grasped that anywhere else in my life. Like and I'm not saying that that's the first time that's happened. We had a terrible movie theater that was only open. It was a one-room movie theater in my town. It's the only movie theater in my town. Uh the old Melba, it was open on a historic license. People did crack in the bathrooms. There was it was filthy and it was disgusting. It looked like uh it looked like the theater in Last Action Hero. Yeah. Uh like just decaying on the walls and stuff like that. But you went to go see movies that you, you couldn't see because you couldn't get out of your crappy town and like people would shout at the screen and they would like yell if it was bad. But here's the thing, if it was good, they shut up. Like and you also forgot that you were sitting on a sharp spring and you forgot that like you lost your shoe when you got out because the floors were so sticky and because you were sort of transported out of it. So like I love the Alamo too. I love the luxury theater experience. And you want to talk about blowing money on a ticket? Yeah. Like one other thing I don't like is that I can't just go to a movie theater right. to watch a movie anymore. Right. I need like a sixteen course meal that yeah. I pay forty eighty billion dollars for in my like rec- reclining chair. Like I'd like to just go to a cinema, watch a film, sure. and then instantly even talk about it. So like. I like that it's quiet. I like that everyone's focused on the same thing. I like seeing something first and like sort of curating my friends to talk about it. Um, and then when it's something that's out that's sort of cult and that's new, like I love going with people and like having these shared experiences. I will never forget we went to see a half. Uh, we went to see a midnight showing a half baked. Because um, we'd never seen it before, but all of the seniors at our school would constantly quote it, and we hated them because they were all drug addict idiots. So we went to go see a midnight show and found out it was a pretty lovely film that we enjoyed, and people were laughing. And you know, it was a bunch of drunk midnight college kids. But there was one drunk guy that was just throwing popcorn and being an idiot, and he was too messed up to stand. And he did ruin huge swaths of the movie. Right until at the end. He got up, he flipped us all off, and then he tripped, and he broke his nose against the handicap rail. And we were literally cheering like World War II just ended. We were like, yeah! Like, mm-hmm. as as his face just gushed blood and his friends physically dragged him, like, everyone was just clapping and, like, high-fiving strangers with schadenfreude. And it was just transportive. Like, I love that. So, like... Uh, Everything you hate about the theater is the thing I love about it. Right. And um, the other thing is that um, I do think there are films that require you to be in a theater. Like, yes. Like, so, for example, uh, Hateful Eight, uh, not Tarantino's best work right. by any means, but if you're going to go see it, sure. you need to see it 
in that crazy fucking aspect ratio yeah, right. and not like horribly letterboxed on your phone or something yeah. like uh, inception i saw in a theater yeah, yeah. and i'm glad i saw it in a theater it was just coralline i felt like yeah. i was made of yarn right and like going through this wonderful stop motion world that was a movie I, i'm glad i saw in 3d pacific rim there's no mm-hmm. reason to see pacific rim if it's not in a theater sure like it's certainly not shakespeare like, you're going for the spectacle, and sometimes you need it blown up that mm-hmm, hard. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for the absorption of the cinema. I do think there's something about the cinema as a uh, communal act, a sociological, like, agreed-upon space in which we consume art sure. at the same time. And I do think that the transgression of those sort of, like, be quiet, stay off your phone norms can be sort of, like, liberating and transportive in certain situations. And that's not every situation, but, like, I'm willing to chase it. I like everything that you said. I wish that the theater was for me what it is for you. But but the problem is all of the transcendent experiences you've described, right? That that at some point you are transported from where you are to where you're supposed to be this world of the of the of the the, the screen. I've just got to be honest with you. All of the other material constraints of sitting in that room by and large interrupt my ability to do that. They blunt the transcendent aspect of the film experience in most instances. But here's the thing. The transportive act that gets me away from the theater is also what gets me away from life otherwise. Like, there was a man during Snakes on the Plane who took his shirt off and swung it around in his helicopter. And when Samuel L. Jackson says, we got to get these snakes off this motherfucking plane, that man and I hugged. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. fierce. And it was primal. And it was just... Raw joy. I've never seen him before. I've never seen him since. I don't sure. know his name. If you're listening, I love you. Right. Because we shared something. Got a night. real connection. And like, yeah, that. I mean, that's not something I have in my everyday life. I'm terrified to ask people to stop stepping on my limbs in like public transportation. Like, uh, it, but like at a Rocky Horror Picture Show, like this accountant or this guy who made my burrito is in drag and performing. Yeah. Like, it, it's just sort of amazing. Like, so I never had a live theater scene. I was never that big into it like but like cult films like underground films uh films you watch to make fun of like uh the movies we watch on movie night every sunday for sure. rppr are not movies i watch by myself right. like right. i need people there because the communal act of consuming it it makes it better than what the more than the sum of its parts i love everything you're saying i know i'm broken here i wish i wasn't broken here <laughs> I cannot get past it. I am I am stuck on this. And I'm not saying there aren't movies that haven't done it, that haven't made me feel for a moment like, oh, I'm not sitting in this room where I am just so uncomfortable, uncontrollably uncomfortable. Now I feel like I'm I'm part of this greater thing. And there are, there are moments in films that I can think about like, yes, this is why people do this. But they are so far and few between as to say that this is a communal, transcendent, transportive experience for me through and, and throughout, which is why I continue to do it. It's probably the reason that I don't go to movies that often. So, Well, let's assume that Alex and Steven are not as diehard as either of us on either end of the spectrum. Sure. So maybe what I would say is um, if you go to a theater and you are concerned about material conditions, go to the high-end ones because they're really lovely now. It's worth the money as The far fact as I that we tell. got you into an Alamo right. blows my mind. Right. And the fact that you went back. Yes. Multiple times. Yeah. And might go again. I will go again. Because uh, I thought you were utterly fanatic about it. But yeah, it's the material condition. So find something that eases that. Yeah. Um, if you're concerned about the quality, just focus on spectacle. So yeah. like there are certain films you don't need to see at a theater. Right. And certain films totally that agree. were required to be seen at a theater. So, also agree. And you can usually tell that from a trailer, if not from a review. Amen. Uh, and then, so consider that. Um, and then otherwise, like if you're... If you're going for and you're concerned about, 
you know, people violating the venue or something like that. I mean, speaking of spectacle, the human spectacle is also something to consider. So yeah. consider who is going to the film with you. Consider who is going to the film with you at that time. Yeah. So there are certain times I won't go see a movie. I will not go see a movie on a Friday night. Right. You're when all high it. school kids are out. No, right. I'm not going to do it. I will go right. see a matinee the next day. Yeah. Or I will go see a midnight show when they're asleep. But like we're gonna go with like other cultured humans, and then if you're going for the the human interaction, the theatrical, the theater of seeing the theater, like a Rocky Horror Picture or or something cult, I mean, be with good people or else don't do that. Right. I think that's the key there. Right. Like, don't go with shitty group. You know what I mean? Yeah. And do not go by yourself. Don't go for by yourself. Any Definitely don't go by yourself. It, it violates the entire purpose of it. And be kind of choosy on what times you're going. I mean, I feel like certain times attract you know like more drunk people or less drunk people, and maybe you don't want more drunk people. Or maybe feel, you do. Right. Exactly. Depends on what experience you're going for. I can't think of nothing more depressing than a matinee of snakes on a plane. The next day after we saw, oh it, man, with like two or three God, retirees, that'd be, good, there. that'd be a good time travel test. Oh, you know God, what I mean? That'd be Pe- good... People who thought, oh, I'm just going to go see a movie today. Well, let me put Elliot Smith on before we go do that. because yeah. I'm going to right. Um, okay, oh, I thought the snake part was pretty good. Oh Jesus. Well, now you know how we feel. Uh, it's pretty clear that we're a little bit different here. Hope that helps. Probably didn't. On that note, we're going <laughs> to grab more beer. We'll be back in just a second with something new. What is that style of beer that you have there? Well, it's an Oktoberfest. Oh, my God. Uh, this is Haas Oktoberfest Lager. How do you spell that, Haas? H-O-S-S. Okay. H. That's for that guy who's doing the spreadsheet. Yes. It uh, is. Q. Uh, that is H-O-S-S. Haas Oktoberfest Lager from Great Divide Brewing Company. Out of Denver. Out of Denver. So uh, still water rule. I'm going to try. It's got a nice red can. Um. Yeah, he's he's looking at it. He's looking at the can. Does it taste like an Oktoberfest? It's a thirteenth inch. It's a thirteenth yeah. inch. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like most October. I think there's a theme here. I think there's. It's a got theme. a plaid can, and it tastes plaid. Hmm. Like that serviceable. Plaid is a three D. Serviceable, warm, okay. but like not fancy. You're not All dressed right. up. Like certainly. Uh, uh, you okay? So first off, at Wonders of Wildlife, plaid is dressed up. Okay, so <laughs> you just put a feather in that cap, sir. Okay. okay. Um. Okay. So while you drink that, we are going to revisit a sports explainer topic from some episodes a ago. First time, re- yeah. Revisit. It's but, our first multiple part story. But uh, you may have forgotten about it already now because it's such insane bullshit. Right. By the time this posts, uh, that you may have deleted it from your brain, like most things in Trump's America. But the Kaepernick thing is back in a whole new, brand new, oh man, extreme yeah, yeah. In- insanity. Hot, yeah. hot ball of garbage yeah. is what it is. Who knew that our first serial-like attempt at multiple part episodes would be about this Colin Kaepernick thing? Yeah. And a sports planer, nonetheless. A sports planer. In- but here we are. I've taken to referring to this situation as the NF elephant in the room. <sighs> really? Well, <laughs> wonderful. And on that note, thank you for listening. This has been the Mix Six. Um, well, that's the first joke I had planned. We'll see how the rest of this goes. So, if you've been listening to us for any amount of time, then you you know we've already covered this Colin Kaepernick issue at length. Actually, at twelve minutes of length. Yes. Um, I've also learned not to time sports planners, so we'll just see how long this goes. Yep. Okay, and that's on you, Internet. So, um, we reality were- itself didn't want the segment to be twelve minutes. Long. That's right. That's right. It didn't. So it just said. No, 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 here's more. 
here's more <laughs> shit for that pile. Um, we've discussed the Kaepernick thing at length, so I will not revisit the Kaepernick protest. I'll assume, for the sake of argument, that we're all starting from a shared premise or foundation yes. here. But but there are some things to know. So while Colin Kaepernick has not been playing in the NFL this season, and he mm-hmm. has not, he's not employed by any of the 32 NFL teams. Is he not even dressing out? No, he's, he's just not in he does, He's not on a team. Yeah. A number of NFL players who are still playing continue to protest during the anthem. And I don't want to list all of them, but I do want to list the ones that matter to me because they're Chiefs players. Marcus Peters, for example, who's widely regarded as one of the best cornerbacks, not quarter, but cornerbacks in the mm-hmm. league, um, has been noticeably and publicly protesting the anthem. And by an sitting. extremely important position as well. That's right. By, by sitting yeah. during the anthem. Multiple players from a number of other teams, the Baltimore Ravens, for example, have been fairly vocal about this. And players across the league continue yeah. to maintain the Kaepernick protest, but probably not at the pace that we witnessed this last weekend. And why did we witness a massive amount of protest? Massive may be a strong term. An increased amount of protest over the last weekend slate of NFL games. Well, because on Friday, September 22nd, in a speech in Huntsville, Alabama, at an event to promote Senator Luther Strange, which sounds like a comic book character. Let's just all be real. There is a comic book named Luther Strange. There you go. Um, Trump says that NFL players... Let's hope to God that senator's not like him, because that would be terrible. No, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. right. Well, well he's a great. Republican. Let's all run. Um, Trump says that NFL players who do not stand during the national anthem are sons of bitches. I think mm-hmm. he actually says a son of a bitch is the phrase that he uses, and that they should be fired. Why would the president of the United States say this? I don't know. We can get into it in a little while. But nonetheless, it sets because off— Because they, they'd stopped raping and hitting women long enough to do that. That's which right. obviously he's for. Yeah, right. So That's, that's yeah, a good point. Yep. Yeah. So they're violating his brand. That that kind of like sets off a series of precipitating precipitated events, maybe. Um, and so I want to talk about two things here. The first is I want to talk about the protests which ensued on the football field after the comments that President Trump made. Then I want to talk about the the verbal responses from players around those comments. Okay, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about what's kind of happened after that because Trump has continued to tweet about this issue because of course he has because there aren't more pressing things in the world like I don't know the humanitarian crisis in puerto rico you motherfucker okay <laughs> so anyways here are a couple of the protests that that take place around the league following trump's statement so darren rovell who's a great football analyst he reports that about 23 percent of players percip- participated in some form of protest during the weekend's games okay he's making deals man by saying don't do this thing he's that's making right. people do that, that that's absolutely very, yeah yeah deals 23 percent of nfl players doesn't seem like a ton but it but but when you think of 23 percent of players doing something this weekend as compared to a fraction of that doing that in weekends previous um it's, it's a fairly large jump right and most of these because of the national attention on the issue given that the president was very vocal about it and it caused a visceral reaction from so many in the nfl community and beyond the nfl community those protests were even more public because there were cameras on more people during the national anthem this week. So about yes. 23% of players participate in some form of protest. Here are some of the more interesting ones worth noting. The entire Oakland Raiders offensive line, which happens to be the only all all the only all African American offensive line in the NFL. Uh, all linemen tend to be whiter yeah. than other positions. Yeah, yeah. Whiter, weird positions. White fat guys, yeah, right? Yeah, white fat guys. Um, the Oakland Raiders kind of are not the curve there, as it were. They sat during the nationally televised game on Sunday night of importance. Not only did they sit, but they were playing the Washington Redskins in D.C. So it was nationally televised, only game on television, only all African-American black offensive line in hey, the Hey, keep in the politics out of my football while in our nation's capital we play a 
sports team named that's, after a horrible genocide that's absolutely massacre right. bingo bango yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple other interesting ones uh you know, many teams just stood with locked arms during the protest as a sign of unity so the jaguars did the patriots did the chiefs did the ravens did i mean i could keep listing almost every team in the nfl yeah, at yeah, this yeah, point yeah. that was kind of the the standing um uh, form of unity this weekend the dallas cowboys widely regarded as america's team actually had kind of a coordinated choreographed routine around the anthem so they walked onto the field before the, the anthem. dance was beautiful. It was wonderful. And Jerry Jones participated. Yes. Uh, they walked Who onto knew the... he could plie that Well, way. look at the man. Of course he can. You know, he learned it to make fun of the kids down the block. <laughs> uh, they, they walked onto the field, locked arms before the anthem. They all took a knee. And then before the anthem started, then they stood up and kept their arms locked. Okay. Well, that's something. Interestingly, and perhaps like one of the more interesting ones of the weekend, the Pittsburgh Steelers as a team voted to stay in the locker room during the anthem, except for Alejandro Villanueva, who plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers and served three tours in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. who came out of the tunnel by himself, stood near the tunnel, and, and did the, you know, the uh, arm over the heart, sang the national anthem, and then went back and rejoined the team. There's been some fallout over that, the fact that he was the only Pittsburgh Steelers player out there. Has it been from the team? Because I've seen a lot of supporting stuff from the team. It's like, uh, he's with us. But that is his right, just as this is our right. Um, both. It's the team and not the team. So, like, Mike Tomlin, who's the Pittsburgh Steelers head coach, he kind of made this, like, veiled comment after the game that uh, – so, so, first off, Tomlin's position this whole time, the Steelers head coach, is we're football players. We're not politicians. We don't want to make political statements. But because of our position, he even says this after the game on Sunday, because of our position, we're dragged into the bullshit. Just come see us down at Trail of Tears Stadium. That's right. Yeah. Because right? this is not political. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, so Tomlin made this like thinly veiled comment after the game that he thought the team was 100% on board that we were going to do this unanimous thing. And then they weren't 100% on board. This one player mm-hmm. who has strong ties to the military, having served in the military three tours in Afghanistan, you know, kind of broke ranks or whatever and walked out there. Actually, the fallout has been kind of weird. Villanueva ends up apologizing after the game and is like, you know, I see the video now of me standing out there without my team and I worry about how it make the, makes the team look. And so I think the stuff you've been seeing from the team in the aftermath is like letting him know, like, no, dude, it's okay. You know, like, yes, you're a part of this team, but you're also part of another team, which is a very important team. Yeah. And you have an allegiance to that, whatever that is. So it's totally cool. Um, it, it's also worth noting that in the 24-hour period after he was the only Pittsburgh Steeler standing out on the field for the National Anthem, that his jersey became the number one selling jersey uh, in the NFL. After Kaepernick. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so those are some of the protests that went... It's not political, though. Absolutely not political, and has nothing to do... Take all my money. Has nothing not to do with the flag political. or the anthem. Yeah. Um, just sort of question. I did watch a very great speech by Shannon Sharp. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. Yes. It's, all right. But it's fucking phenomenal. It is. Yeah. It's like eight minutes long, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. I watched... Uh, yeah, sorry. So, no, so, so jump in there when we get there, because yeah. it's super important. Because So then there are a bunch of, not just protests, but there are a bunch of people who just, like, elicit and issue responses. Oh, okay? great. Yeah. I'm sure these are awesome. Well, well, actually, what, what surprised me the most are the number of people who took positions counterintuitive to their original interests. Let me give you some examples. So on NFL Live, which is ESPN's you know, three-hour block of programming on Sunday mornings about football, Rex Ryan, who's the former coach of the New York Jets and the Buffalo Bills and a big Trump supporter, donated to the campaign, uh, introduced Trump at a rally. Rex Ryan just like flatly says Trump is wrong about this issue. I was – he was wrong in thinking the way he thought about this protest some, some time ago, and maybe he made the wrong decision. 
in supporting the president and the president's position on this. That that's significant. I just I just want to say that, right? And to say that on NFL Somebody Live, somebody breaking contract, or? right? Right. To say that on NFL Live, which is an ESPN property, and I'll get back to that in a I second. I still have trouble believing the man has a soul. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tom Brady, who is a well-known friend of Donald Trump's, called the comments divisive and just suggested that he's flat wrong about locker rooms and the people that play in the NFL. That those people are brothers to each other. That they care about one another and that they care about their communities. Um, Robert Kraft, who owns the Patriots and is one of seven NFL owners who gave Trump a million or more dollars for his campaign, called the comments deeply disappointing and said that Trump was dead wrong about this issue. Roger Goodell, who's the NFL's commissioner. I expected you to shut up and forget we existed while we slowly kill our players. That's exactly right. Right. <laughs> like, We've got what were those million dollars for? For you to shut the hell up? We're trying. Keep, yeah. We're trying to bury CTE research over here, people. We don't <laughs> yeah. have time for your Shouldn't politics. Should you be antagonizing North Korea right now? Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, also commented that the comments were divisive and suggested that they ignored the good that NFL teams do for their communities. Before slithering back into this black pit of obsidian. (laughs) And and a ton of other NFL owners issued a bunch of statements. Noticeably, Clark Hunt, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, was pretty tepid, disappointingly tepid on this issue. And Sam Mellinger for the Kansas City Star, I would suggest that you go read his column on Clark Hunt's response. I thought it was pretty scathing and pretty good. But one one response that I do want to call out, and it happened to be from the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Alex Smith, who I do adore dearly. Smith said after the game... This is the same guy that can't condemn neo-Nazis, but he can be mad at people for kneeling during the anthem. Nice. Good for him for just fucking saying it. Good sack from an offensive player there. Bingo. Amen. And then, um, you know, importantly, many of the ESPN-based shows have spent much time discussing this issue. Um, Almost as if raising awareness... Right. What's the point? Right. Well, well, <laughs> it's weird, too, because in the past, ESPN has been so locked tight on don't bring politics into our arena. Analysts, commentators, get out of here. Like, just recently, in fact, Jamel Hill, uh, who's this wonderful ESPN analyst, has come under fire and, and, and who was probably, you know, censured internally for functionally, well, no, for calling Trump a white supremacist on Twitter because, you know, the facts. Um, ESPN has notorious, I mean, they've told Dan, Dan Levitard on a number of occasions, keep your politics out of this when Levitard was pretty open about his thoughts on Cuba and the Castros because his family is Cuban. It's not a concussion. It's a brain realignment. Yeah, absolutely, right? We're just we're just moving things around in there. You're welcome. Uh-huh. That'd be an expensive surgery if you did it on your own. We'll give you the health care. Um, it's been, I think it's been significant that ESPN has encouraged many of their on-air personalities not only to talk about these events, but to be open about their feelings about these events. Um, and this is unusual for ESPN and it's unusual for other sports based commentators or talk shows to also get that political. So to Ross's point, Shannon Sharp, and you do not have to give me much reason to dislike Shannon Sharp. He was a Denver Bronco, mortal enemy of the Kansas city chiefs. I generally think he's hyperbolic for the purposes of being annoying. I do not care for him as a commentator. Shannon Sharp probably gave the most coherent, cogent rebuke, not only of what Trump said, but also of what everyone in the NFL, most of the people in the NFL and the NFL owners were doing this last weekend. Ross, do you want to pick up here and talk a little bit about that rebuke? Uh, yeah, I mean, he essentially calls out like almost everyone in the NFL for their hypocrisy because yeah. uh, he rightly points out that this only the, the NFL only stood up for the free speech of their players you know, after Trump called them out and uh, and tr- told them what to do, and he said these these owners are billionaires, these are rich people, they don't want to be told what to do. That's right. What, uh, told what to do by anyone, even the president. And because uh, I mean, think about it. Before this had happened, they had all locked 
uh, Kaepernick out. Right. Like, yeah. he, he should be on a football team. Like, oh, yeah. He, he's definitely qualified to be on one. How dare that field quarterback yeah. right. tell me what to do? But, yeah, right. Exactly. But All the masters say something. Oh, can't have that. Yeah. So, a violation of our gentlemanly code. It's, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, and you know, and, and that point. everyone is now forgetting or, or saying this is about free speech. This is about disrespecting the flag, which is not. It's about protesting police brutality. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah. So like he's saying all these people are trying to be self-righteous about it, but they're, they're just trying to say, you know, prove that they're not being controlled by Trump. That's right. Sharp's point is that, that what you've done is you've taken this issue, which was originally about p- police brutality and race, and you, you've now made it an anti-Trump issue, right? Because Trump said something divisive and against you. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, frankly, fuck you for your hypocrisy a little bit. Yes. Don't tell me that you're being righteous today when really you're standing in unity to say you don't get to tell me what to do, which is not the core of the issue. Um, so all of this has been going on. And in the meanwhile, um, Trump, because he's a child— um, can't not tweet about it. And so I've just captured some of the best tweets for the last few days. So best on, meaning worse. Absolutely. Yes. So on Sunday, Trump... Well, yeah, there's no good one. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, what's the worst? No, no, Confifi was pretty great. Confifi was pretty awesome. Remember that? Those were good times. God, remember when all he was doing was saying fucked up words, you know? <laughs> not fucked up things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on Sunday, Trump tweeted, NFL attendance and ratings are way down. All caps on way down. Boring games, yes, but many stay away because they love our country. Uh, league should back U.S., Okay, that's not a sentence. Cool. Since then, Trump has continued to tweet on this issue. On Sunday, Trump tweeted NFL attendance. And, no, sorry. On Monday, Trump tweeted sports fans should never condone players that do not stand proud for their national anthem or their country. The issue of kneeling has nothing to do with race. It is about respect for our country flag and national anthem. Mm, no, it is. Mm. Um, and then this morning, Trump tweets the booing at the NFL football game last night in reference to the Dallas Cowboys when the entire Dallas, Dallas team dropped to its knees was loudest I have ever heard. So there's that Trump hyperbole. Nothing is meaningful. Meaningful if it isn't the most meaningful, yes. and and then this one's there very are odd. superlatives and right and, and yeah and superlatives. <laughs> this one's kind of interesting. The NFL has all sorts of rules and regulations. Okay, the only way out for them is to set a rule that you can't kneel during our national anthem. What is the only way out? The only way out of what? Right. I mean, it's a not so thinly veiled threat that something negative is going to happen. I will say my favorite tweets are not from Trump, but from supposed NFL fans who are now boycotting the league. Oh, and burning their merchandise. Yeah, yeah burning their right. merchandise. No, not going to it. And my favorite term from all of them is going to be my only outlet. Because, like, this is all I had left in your SJW world. Which really might as well just say, I can't read. Like, it, in all caps, it might be, I can't read! And now I can't, like, because that's all I read it as. It's like, I have no other outlet with which to gain culture. It's like, you could read it like a Bible or a, learn like a, the Constitution. It's like, oh, it's the only one. Look on the internet. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's just uh, that is the sweet tear I like to suckle on <laughs> from this whole thing. It, it has been uh, a fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I listened to most of the sports talk shows this morning and their take was that this was one of the most profound weekend weekends in sports history. And. You know, what I think is most frustrating to me about that, and not to parrot what it is but Shannon Sharp... it's not Sharp, political. Right. Well, that's the thing, right? To, to not parrot what Shannon Sharp said, but I think he's so so absolutely spot on, that the profound weekend is the one in which people say, absolutely not, Donald Trump, you don't get to tell us what to do as an organization or as players in the National Football League. Not the one where Colin Kaepernick sits at, you know, sits down but you get kneels. to ma- you Maintaining institutional racism is great. That's right. That's Just right. keep that up. Yeah. That, that that's the thing. And so I appreciate the commentators who for the last couple of days have been like, you know, we're going to look back on this and not 
we did not realize when he did what he did. Really, yeah. the the effect of the the what what Colin Kaepernick did by mm-hmm. taking a you know by kneeling during the national anthem, and and I don't know that truer words have ever been spoken in some ways. What what is frustrating, sad, disappointing to me is that all of that only gets articulated after an idiot says an idiotic thing about it. Yeah. Um, and I, maybe that's where we are. I, I don't want to be that kind of like, you know, apathetic about the state of public discourse in the United States. It's, it's not my thing. But yeah, this was this was both something to kind of like a spectacle to behold, but also something to, I think, kind of be dis- disappointed in. To see this level of vitriol and anger and vigor conjured up about the, the, the wrong, a bad response to the wrong thing in the first place. Yes. Um, and so I guess that's my hot take. I guess that's sports planner. Um, it, I think it's within the realm of likely that we are not done talking about the NFL offense in the room. That is, I just had to get in one more time and see if, like, maybe you guys got a little drunker or, like, maybe your perspective has changed <laughs> now that you've heard my NFL eloquence about this issue. Oh, God. Just How do we? <laughs> all right. All right. I got. I like that one. Boom. Yeah. Boom. See, I knew yeah. if I just kept going, yeah. you know what I mean? If I just said the wrong thing at the right time. You're just encouraging me. I am. That one was good. It that, was great. It was, the first one was terrible. The first, the second one was good. Yeah. If, <laughs> if everybody on the internet can take a hot second and just, just take a break from, uh, you know, lavishing praise on Caleb for something he's done, and just give me like a little pat on the back for like NF eloquence. I think we're all going to be in better shape here. Um, on that note, uh, we're going to grab more beer. We're going to grab more stuff to talk about, and we'll see you in just a second. Spencer, what are you drinking? I've decided to switch things up. You have. I'm going to try an Oktoberfest. Weird. Uh, this is Sierra Nevada's Oktoberfest Fest beer, um, and I'm going to I'm going to still water rule it because that's where we are. I've not had this one. It's a it's a really beautiful can though. I want to say Sierra Nevada. Nice. You really knocked knocked this one out of the park. It reminds me of Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. That's reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it because of the uh, the black and gold checkers? Yeah. Yeah. Diamonds. There's Diamonds. a dog yeah. sitting on top of it. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean. What have you been drinking? (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't you like to know? That's quite good. Ooh, really? That might actually break the Oktoberfest ceiling for me. Mm. (laughs) And it might be an or. That's a four. Yeah. It might be a. Breaking through. Or. Okay, I'll give you that one. Nailed it. You finally swayed me. Nailed it. You wore me down like erosion. Well, you just keep working at them, kids. And (laughs) sure enough, you're going to get there. Um, Hey, what are we talking about? So in Ask Mix 6, uh, Keith asks, I'm curious what your thoughts are, especially from Spencer's perspective as someone with an advanced communication degree. I believe that's a doctorate, right? It is. You are a doctor, Spencer. It is a PhD, they tell me. He's curious at the obsession that people on the internet argumentation have with attempting to use logical fallacies to just completely try to shut down all argument as the be-all, end-all of any form of discussion in online arenas. So uh, what do we think by that? Well, first thing I would say is fallacy, fallacy. Right. Just jump, jump in there. Yeah, just say that and restart that. That's so, right. It's uh, a magic word that wins any argument. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like the Konami No, uh, someone committing a logical fallacy means they're bad at arguing. It does not mean they are wrong. So to say that someone has committed a logical fallacy and therefore their point is incorrect is like saying, just because I say 2 plus 2 equals 4 because... I am the Lizard Queen. Uh, two plus two still equals four, even though I am not the Lizard Queen, and well, that does not make it equal that. Right. So uh, the fact that I suck at arguing doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. So in and of itself, using the logical fallacy to shut down all debate is in itself a logical fallacy. 
But that's not really the point. I don't think it's the point, but it's I think it point. is a point, right? Yeah. Worth, worth, worth pointing out. Yeah. How many other ways can we use point is now the new question that yes. I've got. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is an interesting question. I, I don't know um, that... Well, I'm certain that one does not require an, an advanced or even a non-advanced degree in communication here to kind of like see the problem that it is Keith is talking about, yes. right? That, you know, things quickly devolve into ad hominems, which Keith points out kind of in the, you know, the later portion of the text. Uh, or if not into ad hominems, then to kind of, you know, these slippery slope arguments, um, to these straw man arguments, right? Let me take a piece of a thing and then kind of explode its value and meaning. And I'm glad you've mentioned those three because those are the three you see in internet arguments. Sure. Because those are the three people can actually kind of suss out the meaning from context. Yes. Words. Yeah. You don't see a lot of people accusing each other of two quoques. No, that's right. No true Scotsmen. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any of the deeper cuts. Right. There aren't a lot of people, you know, going, well, I understand I'm doing the thing you're criticizing, but I'm doing it for the purposes of illustrating the thing you're criticizing. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? There's like, there's not a lot of like the wheel turn flip in there. The, yeah. No, we're, I mean, we're talking about the, the most base forms of what it, what it means to, to, to engage another human. Uh, so, you know, the, the first thing I want to say is that I, I disagree. I don't disagree uh, with the premise of the question, but I think that the premise of the question needs a little bit of refocus, which is to say, you know, um, some people, uh, I, would, I would caution to say a lot of people who devolve to logical fallacies are not doing it strategically. Um, I don't think there's a decision. Dunning Kruger. Right. That's right. I don't think there's a decision at some point. Like I could engage. If you're dumb substance. enough to do it, you're dumb enough to not know you did it. There you go. You know, I, I, there's not a point when you're yelling at your uncle on Facebook. Uh, when your uncle goes, I could continue to engage the substance of this argument, or <laughs> I could call my nephew a fat idiot. You know what I mean? Like it's just no. I mean, this is these are the things that that occur. So I don't know that the logical fallacy is a choice. If the question though, and maybe this is where things are headed, is why the logical fallacy? Um, I think it's be, I think it's for a couple of reasons. One. And we've talked about this at some length before. Um, arguments tend to trigger a fight or flight response in humans because our culture, the resistance axiom. Yeah, that's right. Our, our culture, our, our culture doesn't deal with argument and conflict well. When, when you have an idea that is branded as being from outside the tribe, right, it will not be accepted. Whereas information, which would be unbranded, are not considered as part of an outsider other group right would be almost instantly accepted like it was if it came from a nature documentary yeah that's absolutely right so so in some ways right if you're if you're speaking the native tongue you know what i mean uh it's more acceptable Mm -hmm. and and at that point even even the the native tongue becomes an excuse for a logical fallacy in a lot of ways right i mean that's kind of the nature problem of political discourse in, in in political discourse maybe everywhere but certainly in america today not in football not in football, they though. got it right out. Not about politics. <laughs> uh, but, but the other half of that is that um, because we don't deal well with conflict, because when we see someone challenge our opinions, uh, we, we have developed, cultivated a burn culture, you know, like, you burnt, you know, that, that you know, like, <laughs> yeah. where, where, you know, you win, you win points on the internet, by burning someone else more or by defending yourself more vigorously. You win the cr- crowd by sacrificing the lamb. Right. Like, so, yeah, so uh, in yeah, the yeah, argument. Right, you don't right. convince the arguer. Yeah, like, we've created... The uh, last person you will convince is the person you are arguing against. Right. Truth becomes a public popularity concept, contest combined with the fact that when people challenge our ideas or beliefs and we, we don't feel that we're in a safe setting where we can you know make some risk, uh, take some risk, I should say, and really 
you know, hedge a bet that maybe the thing that I'm saying isn't wrong, but I'm genuinely open to changing my position or moving my perspective. So you take that people feel threatened. You take that people also know that the wisdom of the crowd, uh, this fall on CBS, the wisdom of the, it's an actual show, um, starring Jeremy <laughs> Piven. Um, the wisdom of the crowd. This episode brought to you by wisdom of the crowd. Right. Wasn't that a book too? I and DraftKings. I don't know. They're back. <laughs> yeah. They, they came back. Call back. Right. Um, so you take those two things and, and people go, well, you know, the, then the best thing to say here is this. But again, I don't think that's, that's weighed against alternatives. It's easier yeah. to call someone an idiot against the, the, the next seven alternatives, which would engage substance or be other form of logical fallacy. I think it's a natural response because conflict triggers the, the fight response, not the flight response. Yeah. Especially when you post something on, on the internet, right? Because now you've already risked part of your identity. And when you feel like you've done that, now you've got to defend your identity at all costs. And the easiest way to do that in some ways is to diminish the other person's identity. Mm-hmm. If you've lost ground then i've not lost ground yeah. rather than defend my ground you yes. know what i mean um so i think that's part of the problem i think the other part of the problem is that and, and again we've talked about this a little bit but the forum in and of itself i think prioritizes emphasizes uh prefers logical fallacies um you know the fucking the, you know the president retweeted a thing that wasn't true today about another thing that wasn't true a couple days ago. Yeah. And I just think that the uh, clickbait environment in which we live where the headline is the thing and the way to write a gripping headline is an ad hominem, not a substantive takedown of a substantive position. I just think it's easier. You know what I mean? In some ways to do that. So for me, it's a, and also the context of the internet is built from the message of the internet. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Every, uh, every logical fallacy that goes on there stays on there forever. Right. And so the context, tax itself and grows increasingly fallacious. Sure. So I think that, you know, that that for me is kind of the bulk of the problem. Now, there is a part, another part to Keith's question that we've not addressed yet, which is, yeah, but in those instances, why is that thought to be the thing which ends the conversation? So, okay, now you've made an ad hominem. Okay, you've called me an idiot. Why can we no longer continue the conversation, though, because you've called me an idiot, which is supposed to be an exclamation point on this dialogue? And it doesn't function that way. And the reason it doesn't function that way, um, it, well, the reason people think that it functions that way, let me start there, uh, is because if you've diminished my credibility by calling me an idiot, then why does it matter what I say next? You know what I mean? And they're not idiots. They're idiot signaling. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're idiot signaling. <laughs> Hashtag idiot signaling, right? Yeah. It's the phrase for 2017. Use it before it's too late because we're all Idiots are in power. You're just trying to make a power grab by that's, seeming like an idiot. That's absolutely right. That's it. I, I, your motivations aren't good. You it, just you just want to elevate yourself. Right. No, frankly, I by appreciate stupid things. Uh, your rise through the ranks, right? <laughs> it will be meteoric yeah. on some of these internet arguments. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um so, so why do people think it will diminish debate? Well, because the fallacy is supposed to undercut the likelihood of response. So it doesn't matter what you say now. If people agree that you're an idiot, then anything that you say is going to be diminished. Because, it's an ethos attack. That's right. Um, why shouldn't it end the debate? Um, because of what you said at the beginning of this. Yeah, I can be an idiot. That doesn't diminish. In the instance that I've made a substantive, articulate, well-explained, reasoned argument even idiots get it right sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that for me is the problem. That Okay, so you've made an ad hominem. Great. Good for you. You are every other human who's ever lived. Yeah. The question is, did you make an ad hominem and then tell yourself, and therefore the thing is done? Yeah. And, and while I'm not crazy about the ad hominem, but I totally get it, and I, I, I myself have done it, I'm guilty of mm-hmm. this. Um, it, did you make the ad hominem and then continue to engage? Because that's a different question now. Yeah. And if you continue to engage and really meaningfully interact with the substance of the argument, then the ad hominem for me is like, yeah, whatever, you're childish. People people do immature things when they're engaged in an argument and feel heated and threatened. Cool. Whatever. Shit happens. Don't do it. Don't be an asshole. 
Um, but now you want to continue the conversation? Well, let's fucking go. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And for what it's worth, one way to avoid this is to not engage in internet argument. Yep. And I know we've talked about this at length, so I won't spend too much time on it, but if you haven't listened to some of our earlier episodes, let me give you the TLDR. Maybe just don't do it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, to, to Caleb's point earlier about seeing, you know, a shitty version of the room, don't go with a bad group of people. Don't go by yourself or don't go when everybody's totally fucked up. If you don't want to engage in, in ad hominem throwing at one another on the internet, don't start throwing shit around on the internet. I will say, if you are going to call someone on a uh, fallacy, um, do not do so in the hopes to educate them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They had the chance. Yes. Totally. Like, you, And they still have the chance. Right. And they can literally copy and paste it into Google and it will tell them everything about it. Right. Um, they're not taking that chance for no. a reason. And the reason is either because they don't know what those word means. Right. Like, what's an ad? It's a short circuit for the purposes uh, yeah, of short circuit. It's, it's Dunning-Kruger. Like, they're, they, they are so far behind, they don't know they're behind. Right. Or they used it intentionally, and they're going to call you on yours because they're arguing in bad faith. They're Nazis. Right. Or they're, you know, crazy all right people. Right. Um, and so what I will say, if you are going to call somebody on the fallacy, the point is not education. The point is to do what the Internet does best, which is making it a popularity contest of ideas. Mm-hmm. So story. you're not trying to convince the person that is reading it. You're trying to dunk on the person that is reading it. Right. And you're trying to let everybody see you dunk on that person. That's right. And that is your persuasive act. Like, yeah. hey, there's that guy over there. We make fun of that guy for sport. And if you are trying and like, to dunk. I'm, and I used to be a point like that's always bad, but that was pre-Trump and pre-literal Nazis, yeah. it's not always bad. Right. Sometimes you need to dunk on an idiot to show, like, well, he's really bad at if this you're, if logic you're, game. If you're trying to dunk on an idiot, then be honest about it and dunk on an idiot. Like, I, I also firmly believe that when people risk bad ideas on the internet, and there are bad ideas, it is okay to go to the mat on that's a bad fucking idea. And when you do it, do it hard. Do it honestly. If the internet savagery has any saving grace, is right. that it should be a sort of evolutionary selection event for concepts. Jump in there. Um, and if they're freaking idiots right. and they're arguing for like, I don't, I'm not a racist, I want to do a white ethno say. Right. Like, call it an ambiguity fallacy. Accuse them of idiot signaling. Hashtag idiot signaling. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, dunk on them because they're right. they're because you know what if you had done any level and you know what they're gonna say, well you called me an idiot that's an ad hominem like they're gonna do it because like they know what it is but they did it anyway because they're not arguing good faith right or they're just parroting words back to you because they're so lost that they have no hope of catching up to any kind of logic rationality. That's absolutely right. So there's no middle ground here. Right. There's no somebody who's like accidentally committing a logical fallacy. You pointed out. It is corrected, and then you continue to re-engage on the internet. Right. Which is why when you do it, you've got to do it honestly. Don't give me this like, well, I'm just trying to educate them. Don't be benevolent about it. (laughs) If you're trying to dunk on a bad idea, dunk on a bad idea. That's how I feel about that. And just be honest about that. Um, Hey, there's more tips for internet arguing. I feel like we've offered up a few of those now. Um, I look forward to using those when all of you continue to tell me I'm wrong about things. (laughs) So on that note, it's more beer, probably an Oktoberfest. A couple more topics. It's mixed six mock draft time, people, and we'll see you in just a second. Caleb, what are you drinking? I went on a limb. Really got out there. Wanted to mix it up. I got an Oktoberfest. Ooh, man. This one's by Schlafly. Innovation. Schlafly just, out of St. Louis. Just the cutting edge comedy here. Yeah. And? Don't say it. Oh, damn it. I'm sorry. <laughs> October was 
made for threes. I'm so that's sorry. what this is about then, yeah? Okay. I, I mean, it seems so. Right. Uh, you know what? Just take this one off, Q. You know? I don't think I don't think we'll need a... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You got... You, I got a four. You got a four? Yeah. yeah. We broke it? Yeah. You're welcome. The last episode was... A couple episodes ago, it was like all, all twos. twos. Yeah, yeah. It was brutal. Um, but yeah. Uh, so what are we talking about? Well, it's your number one pick, um, which is becoming a theme. Mm-hmm. I, I'm afraid that introducing the mixed six mock draft was a bad idea. It's breaking the. Oh, surprise. something the listeners want to listen to. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm not dare. afraid. I love these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's the mixed six mock draft. Did you pick this subtopic as an extension? Yeah, we of said your... we were going to do it after uh, right. Freudian fan fiction. Right, right. Which we've done. So in the mixed six mock draft this week, we're going to be picking our top three shipping couples. On a literal ship, i.e. for a ship. couple's cruise. It's a couple's cruise uh, for shipped couples. What kind of ship? Can you define that, or is it predefined? It's Flossed in Paradise from the 13th Element. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a couple's spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's going to be great. Yeah. I just want everyone to know. So it's going to be know great. the parameters. And to determine who goes first, uh, we are both going to roll the same die. Okay. Uh, this has not worked for me in the past, so here's to hoping today is a little bit better. I've rolled a 10. Not it's great. A D20, by the way. Oh, also a 10. Oh, God. Okay. Roll off a 1. <laughs> oh, weird. Well, not Your a 1. Your number was higher than that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Would you like to go first or second? I will go first this time. Okay. All right. So, uh, my first one. I'm going to have to un- unhighlight these. Unredact these from these other. Uh, I'm going to go uh, Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> and Ash Ketchum. <laughs> Ash Ketchum grown up. All right. So they're both grown up on some crazy Fifty Shades of Grey kink shit. Wow. Like, just wild. This got weird. Hey, I, hey quickly. we're shipping. All right. You got in there. What did you think was going on? I like the ship? idea that maybe some of these people would just have, like, a really pleasant relationship. No, we're getting to that. Right. This is why it's three. It's the worst of my picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, Yugi and Ash were basically uh, dogfighters for the majority of their childhood. They're very into being in control. They're very into domination, uh, and uh, they're very into you know like some harsh traumatic shit. Like they've saved worlds. They've they've been attacked by animals. Uh, they've seen secret animals, conspiracies. Secret conspiracies. They've seen animals they love died. They've been stalked by terrifying villains in hot air balloons um and they're they they've grown up in this just terrifying world but when they find each other they learn the joy of submitting uh to it and and it gets really kinky bdsm shit yeah it did that's mine uh number three i mean you does wear a lot of buckles and stuff oh god yes (laughs) a lot of buckles Number three for me. <laughs> no commentary? None. Uh, it's not going to be a very good segment if you don't comment, Spencer. So I've decided to go a slightly different route here, something that I would actually enjoy watching. Um, Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. and Christian Bale's Patrick Bateman. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. Like, enjoyable? Yeah. Well, okay. so just get this. They're not right? a very good couple. Think of the layers here, right? <laughs> so on the one hand, they're both putting on a show for the public that is not them at all. Playboy Bruce Wayne bringing models to the hotel, buying hotels, drunkenly kicking people out of his house, right? Mm-hmm. Patrick Bateman trying to be the complete opposite. Boy Scout emoting as best he can as he thinks humans may emote, right? So there's surface level number one. They're trying not to out-publicly do one another Mm -hmm. in front of the people on the cruise ship, okay? Layer number two. 
Bateman is running around just murdering people, right? I mean, that's what he does. Mm-hmm. That's the spoiler alert. If you haven't seen American Psycho, Patrick Bateman kills all the people. Okay. Yes. Batman knows people are dying and he's a detective so he's trying to fucking figure out who's murdering all the people right so layer number two is so in your fanfic they have like a lovely relationship but secret lies they hide from each other no and they're secretly hunting each no other. publicly they don't even have a lovely relationship because oh. they're both pretending to be the opposite of who they actually are okay one is pretending to be ethical and virtuous when he has no sense of ethic or virtue the other is pretending to be unethical and not virtuous when he is in some ways an epitome of ethical so virtue when so, do they get together as, ah yes as so, batman and serial murderer or as so get this two men living lies so get this Okay, in between Bateman's, like, crazed, murderous acts, right? He's just got to decompress from this double life he's leading Mm -hmm. with his, you know, partner. And Bruce Wayne, in between trying to fool Bateman and the rest of the world into thinking he's some fucking playboy, and also figure out who's killing everyone on this fucking cruise ship, also needs a release. It's the perfect time for the two of them to have sex. Because it's a way of equaling out false dichotomies put on for public show. So do you think, like, the Joker and Batman are just, like, waiting to do it one day, or... Yeah, absolutely. Don't we all? Okay. Don't we all think that's where this ends? But you just want, like, you just find the Joker unpleasant to look at, so you'd prefer a a Christian Bale on Christian Bale action? Well, Christian Bale on Christian Bale would be great, A. B, uh... Are they doing the American Psycho look-in-the-mirror thing while doing it? Both of them So it's, like, a tesseract of Bales. Without question. All right. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Absolutely. All All right, well... On that note, I'm okay with it. Of course you are. As long as there's a Tesseract. <laughs> it's a great idea. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. My second one yep. is Peter Dinklage mm-hmm. as the ghost from Destiny. So year one ghost. Yeah, year one ghost. Like That it, wizard came from the moon. Yes, yeah, sounding bored, sounding not into it. Mm-hmm. That's vital to it, all right? And Cortana from Halo. Yep. Both bungee properties, but also both sentient, godlike seed AIs. And they're going to have some freaky, higher-level math sex. Like, <laughs> it's going to be ones and zeros flying around. They're going to be floating around, serving drinks, piloting the ship, while also robot-doing each other. Wait, wait. They're um, going to be like, you want to do some base 11? They'll be like, yeah. Definitely. And like, you ever do a wizard on the moon? And they're like, what's that? It's like, if you have to ask, you can't afford one. But I, but and like, it's just going to be like, you don't even know what they're doing. You're not even know, you don't even know how they're doing I think it. You may so be, I think you may be overselling a little bit. Like, I think part of the, the fun here is that Dinklage really isn't all that into any of it. You know what I mean? Like, do you want to do some base 11? Sure. Like, that's how he emotes the entire first year of Destiny. Like, like some attempt You're, you're at, both, I think, missing... But that's the thing, though. Like, he's a robot, right? Right. He can't show enthusiasm for it, just like he can't show enthusiasm for saying the world. And uh, sure. here's the other thing. They're, they're both uh, sort of, like, forbidden fruiting it with each other. Because, like, Cortana's sort of attached to Master Chief, which is, like, his s- stupid, filthy meat body. He can't do anything to please her. Wow. And Dinklage is like, well, I got this... Stupid idiot from Earth that I keep on reviving after he gets shot, and then I do so, and he dances until he gets blown apart by cabal bullets again. Talks about his work with his friends. It's miserable. I hate this. And then they find each other, and they're just like, "Hey, do you want to?" 
constantly forever program ourselves to have cyber sex in space and endlessly get after it. Yeah, I can see it. And yeah, yeah. They, they can like do their own day, but like secretly they got a they got a side thing with each other. Well, no, I think you're missing an opportunity here because they're both designed to be companions to yeah, some protagonist type. So But they're not but they're companioning no, 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 no. with each other. Just, just consider this idea. They get Forbidden into love. a polyamorous relationship with Gordon Freeman, the guy who never says anything, <laughs> and they could both guide him on his quest. No, he's a wow. filthy, he's yeah. a filthy meat person. That's not that's not what they're into. Right. Man. Okay. they want to get a, this is a well. Break they need for they need a protagonist. They're think, literally having platonic sex, but like, they would just be advising each other on what to do, and they can't do anything themselves. No, I do kind of like that no. idea that they're all like they're they're counseling each other through. The yeah, whole do thing. that. Yeah. yeah, no, you do that. Um, so again, slightly different path here. This one is just actually something that like good old heartfelt thing I want to see because I love these two characters nothing gross nothing dirty just a relationship I would like is to that, be a part are of are you kink shaming my, my shipping dresses uh what I, well, and his be, own I mean right, that, the Christian right. Bale and Christian yeah. Bale is pretty right yeah I wasn't yeah I mean I, yeah you know that's B rated for Bale um <laughs> <laughs> alright all the points for that one right thank you um <laughs> Two characters from two of my favorite shows of all time who I think would complement each other terribly well, and by that I mean awfully. I would like to see Liz Lemon and Michael Scott get together. Um, I No. I, yeah, and for all the reasons you're saying no is the reasons I want it to happen. It's so awkward the ship would explode. That's right. That's right. It would so, cause a singularity. Right? Liz Lemon, who is the IntelliKey of should not, cannot watch the British office because awkward makes her literally want to die. Michael Scott who doesn't even understand awkward because he's just trying to figure out how to be a human in a world. And you throw the two of them together on a cruise ship. The setting here is so fucking important on a cruise ship and watch the two of them try to do things like go to a show where women are like dancing with insane dresses and throwing fire at one another or like going to a buffet. had a shipping episode with Peter Dinklage and it almost murdered me. Right. Where she dates him at the UN. Yes. The awkwardness of that. Right. Where she hits on the young boy, thinking, yes. "Oh God, it all it murders me every yeah, time." On the I can't watch it. It's like, it's awful. Now imagine putting her with someone who is who is scientifically programmed to make those instances even worse and more. They would have the same level of secret privacy as Cortana and Ghost because um, no one could look at it and no, survive. It no, would, it would burn their eyes out with right. awkwardness and. And if the office is any evidence for us, Michael Scott would come back and and not not so accidentally tell everyone about what happened on the cruise ship. He may even like have a large picture of it, which gets sent down to the warehouse and they print it and they put it up on the wall. And then Liz Lemon walks into the office and sees it, and they have to have a conversation about therapy and sex, no. etc. So, anyways, um, it's a nightmare. number one on your list. All right, number one is all about the romance. Mm-hmm. It's Sonic, right? Like as in the Hedgehog. And the Winchester brothers from Supernatural in a polyamorous, polyamorous asexual triad. Man. Completely asexual. Asexual, huh? So look, the things that the Sonic fandom and the Supernatural fandom have done to their poor bodies. Just the, ab- <laughs> the abuses and the abominations wrought. Pretty brutal. Upon those poor fictional characters. They've experienced trauma. And they just need someone who's understand what they've gone through mm-hmm. and someone to relate to and someone to heal with. And you know what? They they need to do that blue hedgehog and those two supernatural fighting brothers need some time to just like talk through their shit 
and like knit quietly in the evening and watch Netflix and actually chill. Literally chill. Maybe they will maybe they will actually fight monsters and get back to stopping Dr. Robotnik and doing those things that they did in their youth before things got really messed up, man. Like really messed up. Turn for they, a worse. They really just need a break yeah. from the horrible things the fans have done to them. Like, I, I appreciate your kindness on yeah. this choice. So they they deserve each other. And I frankly, I, I don't know anyone who could be with them after what's happened to them and the trauma they've experienced. Except someone that all has the impreg, all the void. Yeah, like <laughs> someone who's had that level of empathy. So yeah. yeah. All right. Imagine this: you're sitting on your space cruise ship deck, mm-hmm. and you're just looking out over the stars. Just thinking, my God, like, is there anything more beautiful than this? And on the deck next to you, <laughs> this sultry, gravelly, slightly southern voice is annoyingly contemplating the existentialism of what it is you're experiencing, while another, more gravelly, more excitable man in some sort of, like, bowling shirt is just berating him for his continued attempt at existentializing everything. Because you're on a cruise ship with Rust Cole and Marty Hart from season one of True Detective. And there sit Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Caleb, I broke Caleb. I broke Caleb. Spencer Woods. Boom! Shut it down. Podcast over. I forfeit. That's the funniest fan, funny fan fiction idea I've ever heard. Podcast over. I'm not even going to explain myself anymore. You instead, don't need, you don't need to. I'm going to go get. I'm going to go find some fucking fireball. Ross in the episode. Put in some yakety sacks. Podcast over. I look forward to you celebrating me on Twitter. We're moving on to drunk enough. We'll be back in a minute after I lavish this victory. The open bar is a flat circle. <laughs> Spence, what are you drinking? So, uh, in our last Oktoberfest, but not our last beer of the episode. Oh, intrigue. Bum, bum, bum. Um, I'll be drinking the Oktoberfest from Mother's Brewing Company, locally brewed, locally wonderful, locally ours. That should be their slogan. I will sell that to them for free. Um, (laughs) uh, Oddly, I don't think I've ever had the Oktoberfest from Mother's. Sorry, all of you Mother's lovers listening. So, I'm going to try it live. He's taking a sip. And a long sip. Pretty long. Thinking about life, universe. Here's a weird thing. Yeah. It's a 13th age. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what I thought I was going to get. Like every and nothing else. But here's kind of a weird thing for everybody. This is not the last beer we're going to sample today because we had a listener suggestion and so many of you send us so many interesting beers. And the problem is because of geography and distribution and, and tax laws and, and state commerce laws, we can't get a lot of the beers you suggest. This one we could find and did find. So we thought, despite the fact that it's not an Oktoberfest, and maybe because it's not an Oktoberfest, we'd also try it today. So Caleb, what are you drinking? I am drinking uh, from Ethan Fizzett's suggestion. Mm-hmm. Fizzett? I don't know if you're Frisette? saying... Yeah, I don't know. Is there an R? Frisette? Ethan, okay. I'm pretty sure I got Ethan right. Ethan. Ethan has suggested Holla. that uh, I drink a horny goat chocolate peanut butter porter. Horny goat is either the best name or the worst name for a brewery of all time. A burst name. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is an ore. Oh. 
What's a four? Yeah. A four. I'm going to try that. <laughs> I've never seen one that goes so hard on peanut butter and Ooh. so light on chocolate. I fucking love me some peanut butter. It's, oh, it smells peanut butter. It's very, it's very hard on the peanut butter, which is rare for most of your chocolate peanut butter porters or your chocolate porters. They Those normally are. go harder into chocolate. Oh, I like that. Yeah, no, that's that's a mm. that's a four. Mm. Napoleon Dynamite. It yeah, it smells like peanut butter, right? And thank God, and yeah. thank God, because yeah. we need that's we need a good beer. Us. Yeah, you're right. Solid. That is a four. Yeah. Um, oh wow, yeah, yeah, no. right? Yeah, fucking a. Thank you, Ethan. Killing it. Okay, so anyways, we're in drunk enough here. If you've been listening for some amount of time, you know that this is our last segment. So thanks so much for sticking with us for however long you've been here. And in today's drunk enough. Um, this is kind of a weird topic, but I guess they're always a little bit weird once we get to drunk enough. But but let me tell you where this came from as we were as we were show planning. So uh, a, a good friend, former colleague of mine from grad school, hit me up on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, and she said, "Hey, I'm writing a book for PhDs who are no longer in academia, so that I can give them tips and tricks on like how to get out functionally if they want to leave. You know what I mean? Because it's not a normal thing." Um, and she said, would you be willing to do so it? So the ship sank. Right. Yes. Essays. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. So uh, we did this We did this call yesterday, and it was wonderful. It was great talking to her. Greta Peril, if you're listening, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate the time, and I appreciate the thoughtful That's questions. That's not the name of the book. That was no. A, that was a joke. Sorry. Right. Um, uh, but anyways, so um, we, we, were, we were kind of chatting back and forth, and one of the things that organically came up, and I've always had this issue, and I think you and I have talked about it in the past, and I was so happy to hear that she did as well in leaving the kind of like traditional academic path. It's the guilt over leaving a profession. And I don't know I don't know if it's specific to any one profession, but where, what it what is that guilt and where does it come from and why 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 do you have it? What's it look like, right? And so so what what struck me is that in talking to Greta about the guilt that I experienced in leaving academia, she was like, "Oh my god, that's the first thing I talked about when I started working on this project, writing this book and doing these I think she's doing podcasts, I'm not totally sure." Um, she said that is the first thing I covered, and it's the thing that she hears consistently from people. There's a, there's a lot of guilt. Yeah, and so I thought it would be interesting. You know, both of us have been in the teaching profession. You're still in the teaching profession. I thought it might be interesting to talk about, but had been forced to quit it. Right. At yeah. A time. Exactly. So I have some room of reference. Right. To talk about what that kind of like guilt looks like, where it comes from, if it's reasonable or not, and how to deal with it. You know what I mean? Because that's that's yeah. the other important thing. Because yeah. man, I did not deal with it well for a shit. long time. Oh. It's super heavy shit. <laughs> you think you didn't deal with right. it well. Well Ooh. so I mean let, let, let me kind of give you the 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 example that I give people um to to explain, you know, the level of guilt that I had. So for some context. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with some just fucking brilliant people at the University of Kansas. Um, Robert Rowland is, is, you know, near the top of that list. And Don Parson, who I think I've talked about pretty lovingly on this podcast in the past, was also at the top of that list. And after I left Lawrence, I moved back to Springfield, where Mm -hmm. you and I, you know, just serendipitously met one another of an afternoon. And here we are some years later. Um, and, And Dr. Parson and I, we corresponded via letter, not email, handwritten letter. For Damn. the first two years. Damn. That's what Parson does. He writes you letters to students. to an owl? Yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, a raven, in <laughs> fact. Yes. It's kind of a more aggressive <laughs> approach. Um, Parson and I wrote back and forth to each other for the first two years after I left Lawrence. And if you remember correctly, those two years were years that I was teaching. Yeah. The last letter that I wrote Parson was to let him know that I was not going to put my name in the hat for the tenure track position, which my visiting line was turning into. Mm-hmm. He wrote me back and said, I'm troubled that you're not going to apply for a position you functionally already have. Why not? Yeah. And I did not write him back. That would have been 2014. Uh, I did not write him back until two weeks ago. 
Because of the bizarre shame. Because of the, the terribly bizarre shame. Yeah. Um, and that's three years, for those of you keeping score at home, three, three plus years. Um, and I didn't write him back until I literally round, wound up in Lawrence unexpectedly one day, and autopilot took over, and I was like, I'm near Parsons' house. I'm just going to drive there and knock on, our door, knock on his door and see if he's home. And he wasn't home, but I called his house later to like say I stopped by and see if he was alive. And we started talking, and he was kind to me, which surprised me. Yeah. And so when I got home, I wrote him the next yeah. day. Um, and you might be going like, hey, man, what the fuck is wrong with you? Get over it. But So let me explain what I mean when I say, wh- what is that guilt? What does it look yeah, like? Yeah, I think we should establish it. Because yeah. for our listeners who aren't involved in education, and I'm not saying this is like an act of superiority. No. Because nope. like, holy nope. shit. It's an act of difference. This is great. Right. <laughs> I want yeah. that. Right. I want what you got. Um, yeah. There is no act of shame for quitting a job for the most part. That's or like, right. At least I've not heard of it for, for different things. Now, it may be different for other elements of work in which the meaning is the primary draw. So, like, I don't know about, like, purpose. cops who have quit being cops or firefighters that have quit being firefighters or, or, or social service workers that have or, done, quit being... So- or I, any any purpose where people feel like whatever that thing is, that's their thing. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that's the important bit there. Not, yes, not the and pro-sociality I, of it. Yeah, but, and, yeah. and I, I don't necessarily think it's exclusive to those, but, like, right. I, I don't think that there are people who have experienced it. I think there are people who have not experienced yes. it. Yes. And might need some sort of frame of reference. Yeah, so let me give you the context. Why is it that I would wait three years to tell to tell another human who, who I had a very close relationship with that I was moving on and doing something else with my life? And the best explanation I can give you, and I don't, I don't expect people to understand this, but I'm just being honest. The best explanation I can give is, the way I see it, that man was one of many people who poured an untold amount of time, energy, effort, care mm-hmm. into helping me understand things that I needed to understand and cultivate skills that I needed to cultivate to be really good at a specific thing. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And then I said, I'm not going to do that thing anymore. Yeah. And the idea that I would go back to those people and say kindly, benevolently, maliciously in any format, Hey, thanks for everything that you did, but I'm not doing that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt like, uh, it felt like it would be rude. And, and and on the one hand, I hear myself saying it out loud, and I go, God, do I think that I mean that much to them? And that's not what this is. This is not like some ego thing. This is like, no, I know that 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 those people in particular— I know they are not angry at me. Right. I know they are disappointed in me. I right. know that, Well, yeah. what I know is that they had a limited amount of time to give and a maximum number of graduate students to interact with. And they gave some to you. And they chose to interact with me. Mm-hmm. And so on the back end of that, I said, thanks for everything, but I'm not actually going to do that stuff anymore. Now, the reality is, and this is kind of one of the freeing, revelatory things that Greta and I were talking about on the call the other day, yesterday, was that like I was still using 95% of the things that they taught me. I was just using them in a different setting. Yes. And I think that's like kind of one of the big misnomers, and this is what I love about the project that Greta's engaging in, is it's like you know the idea that because you, you get an advanced degree, your advanced degree is good for one thing, You know, at least for me, wasn't true. It taught me a skill set, and that skill set matters in a bunch of other places. I just didn't really realize that at the time. How dare you actually be compensated for it in a fair way? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that's what part of it was. You sick bastard. <laughs> but, but that doesn't change the fact that, that in between me realizing that and getting comfortable with my new life, you know, after eight, 
10 years functionally as an academic and not having done anything else, that doesn't change the fact that it like kept me up at night and oh, kept yeah. me from communicating with someone that I consider near and dear to my heart mm-hmm. because I feel like I had betrayed some sense of mentorship that yes. is implicit in this relationship. Yes. And so maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the interruption of mentorship or the violation of expectation. I don't really know where it comes from, but I know what it looked like and I know what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and so part of, part of this is me kind of like working through it, if I'm being honest. Part of this is me being genuinely curious if that shit happens to other people or if I was the fucking weird one. I was happy to hear Greta say, no, I've talked to a lot of people who said that stuff. But is that something you've encountered? I mean, is this like a reasonably normal thing? Yeah, it might be, but like I've only ever had it in the context of teaching right. and losing teaching for right. a while. So like um, I felt bad as I've left other jobs, like if I've left someone in the lurch or um, I felt bad if I've left other jobs if I was leaving them and not going to another job because I was worried about money. But like if I wasn't stocking shelves or cleaning floors or frying fries – I never felt as if, like, the world had ceased yeah. that I stopped. Yeah. And I never felt that way about teaching either, but I felt as if it was a particular failure. So, like, I do think it is endemic of certain professions because um, I don't think you have any regard to feel guilt about it because you did choose to leave it. I think you could have gotten a professorship at a different school quite easily. Right. Or maybe at Missouri State. I don't know. I didn't try. But uh, I don't know that that's true because right. you were pretty used and abused by some of the people. Yeah, there was some stuff happening. And like But that's okay. And, and that I'm not happens. saying I'm not saying it's not true, but like right. I am saying like when I thought about doing higher academia, yeah. like it was always laid bare to me that like I had fantastic teachers that led me forward and they had full tenure tracks. But those people always made it very clear to me that they had fought their way to an equilibrium amongst a avarice like a hierarchy of avarice and greed right. and endless machination yeah and then the other ones that were not great teachers were still fully engaged in the hierarchy of greed and avarice and endless, endless machination like and so at, at some point i was like i never want to do that yeah. like and so I would have great teachers, great professors that would take the time and, and really join me. And they would be disappointed on the front end, which I didn't feel a lot of guilty about because I said, I'm going to go teach public education. Right. Um, right. And so, for instance, uh, a, a professor that Ross had as well, uh, Professor B, <laughs> once uh, learned that I wanted to be a high school teacher and literally physically despaired in front of me. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's, you know, you're a Marxist. That is uh, a little bit classist of you, Professor B. I mean, oh, my God. Um, Look how far we've come. And then I said, and then to which he said, no, you misunderstand. It's not a class thing. And I'm like, well, what it is? I, I feel like I'm a very good student. I feel like I'm very dedicated. I feel like I can, you know, transform these ideas and other ideas that my students need to a level in which it will do more good than they than when they are already at college. And he said, yes, you are a very professional and good student, but public education doesn't want professionals. Public education wants martyrs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) It's like they don't care if you're good at your job and they don't care if you're professional about your job. They want the job to consume you until there's nothing left. Hmm. And God damn, if that old Marxist bastard was not dead on, full on, accurate right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so um, I was in a position for a while there where I left teaching, but I didn't leave so much as I was forcibly right. chased Asked out with, to leave. <laughs> with torches and pitchforks right. um, and uh, various other things without talking about it. So, But I still felt this in, like 
palpable guilt. And it was almost worse in some ways because it was like, you're not good enough for this right. thing. Like, right. And um, when I was doing work that was not that, I felt utterly meaningless, except it was like the game thing, which is another thing I feel like, well, someone got four hours of enjoyment out of this. Mm-hmm. Like, that felt really fulfilling. Sure. Like teaching felt fulfilling. It's, yeah. Well, it's the same flavor. Yeah. But as I was forcibly driven from the profession for a time, yeah. um, what I discovered was that uh, the problem was this, and this is where the guilt came from. A profession does not have to be an identity. That's absolutely right. But when a profession is an identity and you leave it behind, you've left a self behind. Yeah, yeah. Or when you're forced to leave it behind, you've still left a self behind. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, guilt is going to be one of those panic emotions you feel. As things go out. So, yes, I am currently a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I have learned through painful lessons that I am Caleb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm employed as a teacher. Right. Yeah. That is the new me. Right. And it's not that I don't invest in kids. It's not that I don't stay extra long. I did so today. That's why we're recording late. Right. It's not that I don't do my due diligence and I don't teach. But if I no longer teach, I would really like to skip the like nine to ten months of black depression sure. that come with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, would, I would urge you and everyone else too as well. Right. Because right. Um, while there is meaning to it, while there is purpose to it, um, please don't think that that's it in terms of what can have purpose in your life um, because, you know, that's that's a smokescreen. And it's also what they use to lead you by the nose. Right. Like the, the yep. guilt is used to make you tamp down a lot of, like, abusive-ass labor practices right. yeah. that they would rather you not look at because right. you're on a holy right. mission right. from right. God. Right. Like they Your would- transcendent purpose. Right, should get you yeah. out of the muck, which is why you don't have health care. Right, like you know that kind of shit. Like yeah. so, um, a lot of those guilty jobs. What I would say, and Professor B, if you're listening, I hope you're smiling down on me. What I would say, a lot of that transcendent purpose that like you should feel guilty about not working here thing is an excuse mm-hmm. to get you to work longer, harder for less. Mm-hmm. It is ideological screens. Put up in front of you mm-hmm. meant to devalue your labor. And like ideology fucking works. Yeah. Like like we wouldn't be here uh having gone through school and valuing it if it didn't. Right. Like right. uh but you know, you have to get over that at a certain point. Especially if um yeah, and so what I said at eventually a point where people were like, Well, why don't you teach anymore? And I didn't want to say no one wants me. Right. And that's not true anymore. What I would say is like I still love teaching. Mm-hmm. I don't think teaching loves me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's where you have to get to. Sure. I think that's reasonable. And like, even if you do quit of your own volition, like you do, right. at some point you need to be, well, I did that for a reason. I, did. I didn't just say, fuck the students. I don't like talking to you. No. Like, love the and, students. Yeah. And yeah. you were great at that. You you said it because like, well, I loved doing this thing. Right. But this thing did not love me back as right. much as are in a way I needed at that moment. No, and yeah. and it was limiting and I, you know, only ever done that thing and I thought, well, I want to see what other things there are. Um and I walked into another thing immediately that I loved and like really like enjoyed doing. Yeah. And so so it was none of that. It, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that was probably in some ways even the the more odd thing for me is 
it's not that I walked into something I hated doing. And so it felt like, oh my God, I left this thing that I was supposed to do or felt some purpose or transcendent vision around. And now not only am I not doing this, but I'm doing this other thing that is like, ugh. It wasn't that at all. It was like, well, I left this thing that I thought I was going to do forever and that I spent a bunch of time getting ready to do and took a bunch of time from really wonderful people to help me figure out how to do that thing. And I'm going to do this thing. And hopefully I can find other people who will give me their time and energy too and and teach me how to do that. And luckily many of them did. And and maybe I was in a unique position because the stuff that I learned in A worked really well in B. And so it didn't feel like I was turning my back on them in some way, but in another way, it felt very much like I was turning my back on them. Yeah. Um, because it is it is a, a team or a fraternity or a group, whatever you want to call it, you know, a congregation, maybe. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, some of that I think is used to make you feel better or to excuse pay um, or well, expectation. The, well, or, or just like basic treatment. Like, right. don't, don't, because it is a cause, and I'm not saying it's not a cause, and I'm yeah. not saying it's not a worthy cause. Right. It doesn't exclude you from circumstance, or else what would sure. be the, if everything was a cause, what would be the use of a cause? Yeah, where, that's right. Where would its value that's come right. from? Totally agree. It's not excused from circumstance. Maybe you were meant to do that. Right. Maybe it was your life's calling. Right. Maybe your boss was legitimately an asshole. Right. Like, right. And like, that got, stuff happens. Yeah, right. you were at a bad place in a bad time. Right. And you know what? You need food. You ain't got time to sit around. Yeah. And like, pine after like the crusade that left you behind. That's right. Go find something else. Right. Like, don't marry your identity to this thing that's not going to right. support it as, as you know, yep. it needs to support it. One of the things that um, this, this really great um, woman that I talked with a few months ago, I saw her on a panel, and I was like, Jesus, this is like one of the most enlightened perspectives around work I've ever heard. I got coffee with her. Um, well, I got tea because I'm not drinking coffee anymore because fuck me. And, um, and uh, we're sitting there and she goes, you know, at some point I stopped telling myself that it's about purpose and I started telling myself it was about environment or setting. My purpose is to do a bunch of things in life. I want to be in an environment or setting where I feel like I can do those things. Yeah. And un- unhinging that purpose thing from position or job and instead focusing on environment and setting was like such a freeing thing for me. Like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. I don't have to go to work every day and say, God, I'm fulfilling my purpose. But I do want to go to work every day and be like, I fucking like working here. Like, this is a cool setting where it, where I can do other things like record a podcast, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or work on a board game, shameless yeah. self-promotion. Uh, or still do some consulting on the side or teach a per course class if I wanted to. Uh, that was like that. That went a big, big, long way in helping me feel a little more comfortable with wherever I am. Um, as did some success in some of these things. Being like, look, I left, and I left for a reason, and it, it's not bad. You know what I mean? And that that's unfair too. I mean, that was just me holding myself to a standard where I felt more comfortable. I don't know. Listen, if you've been listening to this verbal processing of guilt or whatever it's been, I don't know. It's been very th- therapeutic for us, and I'm genuinely... Thank you for paying us for our own therapy. That's right. And I'm genuinely... We couldn't be happier. I'm genuinely cur- curious, though, right? Like, how other people deal with this. Because, and other professions, especially. That's right, because I have no doubt that other people work in a number of other professions, and they go, yeah, and then I left that profession for a while, and I felt like I'd violated something. Like, I want to know... Yeah, what and the- I've only worked in one thing that would be considered a career, and the things I don't feel outwise for... Right. Are not careers, right. or not thought of as careers. So, right. So, so other careers in which you have this sort of like guilt for quitting. Yeah. Guilt for moving on. I'm yeah. genuinely curious from, from people listening and engaging and interacting if you've experienced this, why and what was it like and what were you doing? Because I want to know where else this exists. You yeah. know what I mean? It was, it was comforting to me selfishly knowing that other people who had 
kind of been through a similar pattern as I were like, oh, absolutely. That was the first thing I dealt with. It was like, well, yeah, of course it was. But man, were we not talking about it? Um, yeah. So, anyway. Especially at the time we needed to talk. Yeah, about. that's exactly right. <laughs> so, um, all of that to say, if you've been listening to whatever all of this was, thank you so much for that. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. If you're not already following us on Twitter, please do at The Mix Six. If you're not following us on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash The Mix Six. We've got a page and a group. You should be in both because, as I understand it, that's what the quote-unquote cool kids are doing. Don't forget to check out our website, www.themix6.com. And if you've not rated or reviewed on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the other relevant pod services, please do. We're trying to get as many of those great reviews as we possibly can because that helps us spread the good word of the Mix 6 podcast. Thanks for again for everything that you do. Once again, I'm Spencer. I'm Caleb, and before we leave, I want you to imagine Rust and Marty Cole. There it is. Yes, they took each other's names. Arm in arm, staring at the sunset as they sail into the distance in a lovely Mediterranean cruise. That's how hard I won the mixed six mock draft today. <laughs> you left a lingering image in my mind. That right yes. there. That, and in the mind of If listeners. someone would want to illustrate for the show notes on this, <laughs> Rust Cole and Marty Hart sitting on a deck looking at a sunset. <laughs> Illustrations welcome. Feel free to email us, the mixed six, uh, with the numer- numeral six at gmail.com. Uh, we will be happily accepting your, your um, applications and illustrations there. Thanks so much again. True Detective for Season 3. Everything that you do, we love you. I don't think that's the Mersula plot. is the boat captain. We I love don't. you more than we love ourselves. We'll see you next time.